Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 31 with Richard Allen. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Before we get into the uh, very special guest, uh, I just got a big announcement to make. Uh, really proud and honoured to announce that the we've just launching the uh, My Personal Football Coach Level One Coaching Course. So this is an e-learning course uh, available on the app. It's completely unique, the only one of its kind in the whole world. Really proud. Um, it's called the uh, Elite Soccer Ball Mastery and One v One, focusing on the, those key technical areas. That we've uh, we've heard that are real uh, key uh, requisites in all the top uh, academies in world soccer. So this level one uh, online e-learning course available on the app will focus on an introduction to ball mastery, the one v one duel, and small sided games. So giving you uh, the important knowledge about understanding about these areas and also how to effectively use them in your sessions and create those real technical outcomes. Uh, that you'd likely see in some of the top academies in world soccer. So really proud. Um, it's taken a while to put together. Uh, it's for, for coaches at all levels, whether you're at grassroots or you're an academy level or you're aspiring elite coach, uh, or if you're working with beginners or you're working with pro players. Uh, this is a real how-to manual about uh, supporting uh, quality technical development, uh, developing technical decision makers, uh, developing those uh, game changers. So really proud about it. If you want to know more about the uh, the level one course, the My Personal Football Coach level one in uh, elite soccer ball mastery and one v one, just go to mypersonalfootballcoach.com, click on the coach button, and I'll take you through to the to the coaches page. Uh, so, fantastically uh, privileged, lots of uh, feedback already from where we've been testing it, and uh, so I really think that's going to be a big hit. So, if you're a coach or you're a parent and you want to uh, improve your knowledge about technical quality. Uh, coaching, uh, whatever level you coach at, uh, make sure you go to mypersonalfootballcoach.com, check out the new e-learning course, uh, the level one ball mastery and 1v1 elite soccer coaching. Um, now onto the show, uh, this show we've got a fantastic guest, uh, Richard Allen, who was previously uh, head of talent ID at the English Football Association. Um, uh, really privileged that Richard's come on. Uh, I've known Richard for a few years, I worked with him when he was at Spurs, he was head of recruitment at Spurs. He moved to QPR and then became head of talent ID at the FA. So shares some great knowledge about the changes at the FA, those great changes which had such a big impact in terms of all those those tournaments that the young players have won. Uh, he talks about you know the England DNA, uh, the changes around that, and the, the different types of players they got in, and the different sorts of philosophy. So really interesting. This is really one of the the, the best ones that I've I've done really in terms of. Uh, the insight Richard gives is a real, really intelligent guy, a really good speaker. He's worked at some of the top academies, obviously Spurs and QPR, and actually, and now at federation level. So uh, this is really interesting if you're interested in player development or, or recruitment or talent ID. Uh, this one's not to be missed. Um, really looking forward to the convention in January. 
going out to Chicago, going to get a booth out there. So my personal football coach will be out there. Uh, also want to welcome uh, many clubs still signing up to the My Personal Football Coach Club Partnership, welcoming uh, Total Football Academy uh, from uh, from London, North London, uh, Hearts and Bushy. So really privileged to have those guys on and we're getting clubs on board uh, every week from all over the world. So lots to come, uh, lots happening and uh, we'll see you soon. So Richard Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, can you just here. give us a brief uh, outline of your your, uh, your your journey up to this point within football? Yeah, so I'm currently director of football at Loughborough University, so I've been there since January. Um, and I'm responsible for kind of all football at the university, which is really good from the coaching side to recruitment to commercial activities, a whole range of different things. So uh, yeah, really enjoy the job. Massive university, number one for sport in the world. Um, great people, you know, just a remarkable place. So really pleased to be there. Previous three years I was at the FA as Head of Talent ID. So I was responsible for supporting the national coaches with the identification and selection of players um, for the national squads, men's, women's. Uh, when I first joined, I was responsible for setting up the under 15s programme, which was a new age group. Yeah, the England teams used to start at under 16s. Um, most countries in the world started earlier, but we were still starting at 16, so we started a 15s programme, which I think was successful. And in fact, my first group was the group that ended up winning the World Cup last year, so a very talented group. But I think having him in for that extra year really made a difference, giving him a different games programme, etc, etc. So I um, was involved with the senior leadership team when I first went there and we started to do the, the work around the DNA and you know a whole range of things to kind of underpin what, the, what it's become now in terms of the successes. So really pleased to have been involved in that. Back end I was supporting AD, Boothroyd with the 21s and Gareth with the seniors as well as obviously running the whole department. So that national coaching thing was really important. Um, and then uh, we introduced a whole um, range of talent ID courses. So a pathway, a little bit like the, the coaching courses. So from level one up to level five, level one being an online course, which is free for people that are working within grassroots around talent ID, all the way up to five, which is for technical directors. Level three was the only one that was missing and that's gonna start next month. So. Uh, we now got five levels, which I think we're the only national association any country really to have in the world. Um, so that's that's exciting, and I'm still involved in doing that. I run the courses and tutor on the courses, um, heads of recruitment, club scouts, a whole range of different people. So that was the other part of the job. Um, before that, I spent uh, two years as head of academy at Queens Park Rangers, so taking a centre of excellence through the Triple P audit process. Uh, achieving CAT 2 status, which um, in the circumstances wasn't easy. Um, no training ground, had to move just prior to it kind of being audited, managing to push the audit back a little bit to see if we get everything in place. Um, not really having the facilities that met the requirements, but somehow managing it to get it across the line, getting the planning permission at the last minute for the indoor area that now has been built. Um, great experience. Um, you know, again, working in a good club, um, interesting people, but um, yeah, we, we kind of achieved what I wanted to achieve. Um, so two years there, and then prior to that, probably about eight years as head of recruitment at Tottenham. Um, so joined in 2005, John McDermott as the academy manager, I think it was his uh, first appointment, and then joined by some really, again, really interesting people like Chris Ramsey and Alex Inglethorpe and 
Perry Sutkin was already there and you know Trevor Webb came through in education and really setting up a whole program. Um, quite a small team that's now grown obviously after the kind of audit processes and all the things you had to have in place for ECPP. Um, and I think you know looking now at the players that have come through, quite a successful time. Got some wrong but got some right as well. So that's a so very just, basic background. That's lovely. So just reflecting then, starting at the beginning of the journey then at Tottenham, is, am I right, because I remember when I was there, was I right in saying when you first went in there was maybe only one player or very few players from within the A406? So the A406, for everyone who doesn't know, is a, 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 a road, a circular road that goes around the London and the inner city sort of roads. So there wasn't that many, many players from the inner city of, of London. No, no, not at all. And, and again, my before joining Tottenham, I'd spent... 20 years working in a youth organisation based in Hackney, right in the centre of London. So one of the reasons uh, that I was invited to go there was because I knew centre of London and we weren't recruiting anywhere in the, in the inside the North Circular. So most of those players were going to Arsenal. Boys that were in Harringay where Tottenham's base were going to Arsenal. We weren't getting any players at all. So clearly my expertise was in Hackney, Islington, Tower Hamlets, Harringay. The people I knew, the football I knew. So it was always likely that we would change the, the way that we went about our recruitment and the types of players that were coming through. I guess Tottenham probably up until that point, not being unkind, was known as the kind of 4x4 four four club. Yeah. Everybody turned up in their 4x4s, four nice people from you know, the home counties and outside of London. And I'm not saying that they didn't have some good players, because if you look at some of the players that have come through now, they came from those areas. But certainly it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange kind of phenomena where you know, it wasn't at all representative of the community that was around, especially around White Hart Lane, but in London generally. So how did you go about that then in practice? How do you go about changing, you know, the recruitment strategy, hey, getting those, those different sorts of players from those areas in? Yeah, well, I guess it's, it's having the right people on board. So again, recruitment was key, making sure that we were well organised, but we had people that were capable of working in those areas, knew those areas, knew the football in those areas. Um, so we recruited quite heavily for people to scout um, and then I think it was about forming relationships um, with clubs, grassroots clubs, other clubs um, to help support that and I think from that it was quite an easy step. I think the biggest challenge was then um, working with the coaches and the people inside the club to understand this was going to be different. You know, They hadn't been used to coaching kids from the inner city of London, all the, the potential issues that could Come, come through so um, I had to do quite a lot of work on that as well but yeah I think it was getting the right people in place creating the partnerships getting that trust uh, and then thinking about things like where we had development centres so we had a very strong development centre in New River which eventually ended up getting over 50 players signed within the academy right in the heart of the area that we wanted to get to so in terms of preparation before going into the academy it was a great location um, and again employed good coaches to work there that knew how to work with kids from those kind of communities. And thinking about then those, 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 those kids from those working class communities, if you like, those inner city areas, do you find they have sort of different traits or you know, what sort of things did they bring to the table or is it, or is it just... Um, you know? No, I think, I think there was a variety because London is such a melting pot. You had you know, people from all sorts of backgrounds and with that comes different cultures around football, so the way that they play football. You know, I became aware of little pockets of South American football players that would play and to get them involved and they would play the game differently. They you know, have a different take on how they're coached and how they play. Um, so a whole range of different things that probably meant that they were um, perhaps a little bit more streetwise. Mm. Um, their 
not saying that other kids didn't make the effort, but certainly they had to commit to it. So even getting out towards where Tottenham's train ground was at Chigwell, you know, if you didn't have parental support, was really difficult. You know, it was two buses and a train and a long walk down Luxborough Lane. So, you know, to get there in itself was was a, you know quite a feat, especially if they'd had siblings that they had to go and look after. So. Again, not suggesting that those weren't committed to it, but their commitment was huge, their love was, was huge. Perhaps a lot of them had played a lot more unstructured football, smaller-sided games. Um, some of the inner-city leagues were quite tough, sort of breeding grounds of players. Um, and, and I think generally the, the level of competition was that much higher, um, which I thought lent itself to the kind of players that we wanted to get into the club. I, as, as a young coach there, doing the under-9s, under-8s, under-9s at that, in that, at that time, I remember those the boys coming in and maybe them having that a little bit more bravado, a little bit more attitude, a little bit more, and then some of the boys maybe from the rural areas, yeah. a little bit intimidated by that, and you could definitely see that sort of, you know, yeah. Yeah. interesting clash of, of uh, personalities. Yeah, I think they bring a, a confidence and maybe a, just a different way of acting and behaving, not that it was negative, but it was just different. And it did take, it took time for the other players to understand that, coaches to understand that and parents to understand it. You know, this was this whole group of different kind of kids that were coming in uh, who were good, you know, good football players, lots of ability, but also had a little bit more to say for themselves. Do you think, obviously, um, the, the philosophy that John and Chris implemented at the club, very much based around ball mastery and 1v1, did you look for different types of players maybe that would, you know, you generally classically would get in? Or, I mean, because I remember, as from my point of view, again, our players were maybe a bit more small and more technical than classically other academies had they were yeah. a bit more physical maybe well again I think it you have to link your your kind of recruitment strategy to your club philosophy so if you've got a very strong philosophy which in the end was quite simple in terms of these are the types of players we look like 1v1 domination be able to manipulate the ball giving what we call wow moments if you give those messages to the scouts it makes things much easier because they can go and identify their players now what it led to, I think, in the short term was, as you say, lots of small technical players who could do stuff. I think it was then getting to understand that a wow moment could be, actually it could be 1v1 domination, but it could be a good tackle. It could be a, a you know, a great save. It could be, a, it didn't have to be everything was a trick with the ball, but you had to be comfortable with the ball. So I guess, um, you know, I, I think it, 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 we ended up with a lot of those types of players, which meant that you know, my job was made harder later on because we were looking for centre-halves. We were looking, yeah. we were in game situations where physically we were finding it difficult to compete and therefore, you know, although the result was never going to be important, you know, if it was stopping us actually playing the way we wanted to play. Um, and so you have to then think about, okay, well, there are other attributes that we might need to bring in to help support those players. Um, good players coming in, we didn't want them to be of a low standard to make sure that they kept going, but certainly we had to get other types in to make sure that we were producing players for the right positions later on, um, but also a support kind of mechanism for those that were the highly technically gifted ones. So then thinking about the recruitment process, and um, you know, it's, a bit, it's a hot topic at the moment, talking about talent ID at the youngest age groups, so you know, how do you recruit, what are you looking for when you're recruiting an, an eight-year-old or an under-nine when they're coming in, you know, under-sevens, under-eights? What's, yeah. what's, what are the qualities you're looking for at, at that young age? I mean, it's really interesting. So, I mean, I think people have got a, a range of views of, you know, when you should start doing that. And, I, and I, you know, I do fear that it's getting younger and younger and younger. I guess if you're providing a programme at the very young age where it's really fun and you're doing lots of technical work and it's lots of games and, you know, when I was looking at players of that age, 
not that I, in any shape or form, would say I'm an ex, you know, an expert on on selecting under sixes and sevens. I'm, I'm not. I think we had people that perhaps were better than I was, but we were looking for players that would play with a smile on their face, enjoy what they were doing, and had that kind of semi-natural ability to be able to, you know, to, to manipulate the ball and and want to try things. Um, so it goes back to that thing, you know. Can they get off your seat? Can you can you have that wow moment where they do something really special and you think, wow, you know, that's the kind. But uh, the other thing is, is you know, for most clubs, I always always suggest that you get as many as you can in, you know, because it's it's to, to try and get down to a small number at that age, you know, it's almost impossible. So I'd always suggest take as many as you can, keep them for as long as possible, and you know, be as patient as you can. Um, and then I'm sure you'll get more from the program than just by trying to get it down to. 12 players for an eight aside, you know, take 30 players if you can. I know it's not always easy in practice, but I'd always suggest you take bigger numbers rather than smaller so you don't deselect too early. Um, but I don't think there's any, it's, it's no crystal ball. I think if, you know, they might show some, you know, outstanding technical or potentially technical qualities, they could be some physical qualities that you would think are important. But for our scouts, it was always technical, technical, technical. Now, I understand that they need to have at least one outstanding physical attribute. Um, that might be enough to get them in if they were a little bit short technically. If they had something that was really, you know, really agile, really quick, that might be something that would get them over the line. We did lots of stuff on things like relative age effect. So, you know, slightly older than that. But if you look at some of the top players that have come through and the ones that we signed, maybe they didn't. They didn't always, you know, meet all the other criteria. They met some of it, but actually, we were doing stuff around boys that were born in that kind of. June, July, or August period, and that again might have got them over the line to get in. Interesting. And what about? I want to come back into that in a second because I want to talk about a couple of ex players. But uh, what about handling expectations? Obviously, as you know, you're getting parents in. Uh, you know, they're seeing the bright lights. Uh, yeah. What do you do to try and temper expectations? And you know, dealing with all these players that are coming through in a small percentage that maybe get, actually get to the top. It's really hard because it's it's so competitive at the younger age. So you are doing stuff with boys to persuade them to join, you, you know, give them opportunities to train. You might be taking them to tournaments, you might be bringing them along to games in a box. And, and the reality is, once they've signed, that, that, some of that goes. No, not all of it. The, you know, the international games programme we had was always extensive. But you're not going to be going into the, the box at the club every week. You're lucky if you can get a ticket. Uh, and, and every club was doing the same and everybody's competing for the same kind of players. And so therefore, it's hard not to build that, that expectation because everybody's chasing the best players. You know, it's quite perverse that you're standing there with a, a little seven or eight year old, welcoming them into the club and persuading them to just kind of sign. You know, it, it doesn't feel quite right. And of course, then the parents, some will always think that this is their big moment and you know, they're gonna be getting their Aston Martin next week. And clearly that's not the case. What we found, or I found, was my biggest reality check was when we did the signing night and John McDermott used to come in and tell them how you know the real kind of truth behind it all and in terms of you know the the likelihoods of success most that drop away the things that they had to do and it always used to say come on give them a little bit because they you know, let enjoy their moment but he was right I mean they need to understand that you know seize the moment take the opportunity it could go on all the way more than likely it will stop it might stop and then start again at another time you know take all the experiences you can you're going to, you're in a very fortunate position to be able to access the training facilities the coaching the, the foreign tours and tournaments 
but there's no guarantee of that success. So I think his, you know, when he came in and he'd always been, you know, would have been accused of being a bit grumpy and the parents were going, what's the matter with him? I thought it was all, that reality check I think was really important. And then to continue to, to do that without destroying the kind of confidence and that, that dream of wanting to go forward. Um, but naturally within the club setting, when you've got retained release, you always found that there was that kind of natural feeling that, you know, it could end quite quickly. And, and, and I think, uh, I think we did quite a good job at Tottenham to, to do that um, and even as it goes further through the pathway you know how you actually deal with scholars when you offer them when you offer them a professional contract what you pay them I think you have to have a policy all the way along the line that you're st always trying to keep their feet on the ground. Interesting and you mentioned the um, bio banding just talking about relative age effects I mean and but so for instance, I was thinking about this earlier. Oliver Skip, who's uh, on the brink of the first team now, is on tour. You know, he was he, he was a September birthday, always very strong, very developed, very quickly, and uh, was always playing up. Then he had someone like Paris Magoma. Remember, he came in when he first came in as under eight. Obviously, had brothers in the academy. A May birthday, uh, much more of a slower starter. And as, I mean, as, as an inexperienced coach, I must admit, I, he came in. I thought, well, he's miles away from this. You know, because yeah. we had such a talented group. You know, that yeah. age group you talked about. It's the same age that won the the, the World Cup. That's a very talented group, so I mean, took me a while to understand that, you know, that that uh, from the September to May being such a massive, you know, time difference. How do you deal with that in terms of when you're recruiting players, especially at a young age? Yeah. And then how do you educate your your, your coaches and your scouts to understand that? Yeah. That patience. You like. I, I mean, wherever you draw the line in the sand is always going to be an issue, and, and and I guess it's it's one understanding. I think people now recognise the issue. It's then what you do about it. So at the younger age, it's massive. You know, that year's difference. It's huge, and if you've got clubs, and I've spoken to a club before who said, I can't believe it, I've just looked, you've told me about this relative age thing, I do the under fives here, and all of them are born in September. Well, why wouldn't they? Because the ones who are born in May probably can't really walk or do their shoes up, you know, they can't do anything at all, because they're more like three-year-olds, and that's, yeah. you know, that's so that, that it becomes less of an issue as they get older. I guess the bigger problem is, if those boys have already been rejected from the system and can't get in. I mean, all the evidence would suggest, actually, if you can get into the programme, you become the most valuable players. So if you look around at those born June, July, August, if they can get into your programme, they do tend to be your biggest transfer fees going out wow. in the future. And whether that's because they've had to battle to get into the programme, I don't know, probably. Is it because actually when you find somebody like that, you give them more time and space, you think about the programme they've got to do, do you play them up, do you play them down? Um, there's a whole range of different things. I think people get confused about relative age effect and maturation. Yeah. So we also had Phoenix Patterson, who was born on the 1st of September, who was probably the smallest player in the yeah. group. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think in the early days, you have to be aware of it. The scouts find it quite difficult because they don't always know how old the player, they don't know the date of birth of the player. They're just mm. watching a game and picking what they feel are the best ones. Often at grassroots level, I'm not saying always, but the best teams might have the biggest, strongest and oldest players within their groups because that's why they're successful. So I guess it's knowing that some countries, I think it's Denmark, do one where they number the shirts, one to 11, so if it's 11 aside, one being the oldest, 11 being the youngest, so everybody knows who wow. are the oldest and youngest. Great for the scouts because they can yeah. do that. When we used to have our trialing nights, you know, people spent ages, John McDermott, the academy manager, would go around and ask everybody, what's your date of birth? What's your date of birth? And it can kill me when they're why they were born in September, October, and November. Yeah. So again, it was a little bit of education around the scouts understanding it. I'd have to say in the end, what they would say is if the player wasn't any good, they would say, "Yeah, yeah but he was born in May, June, July." And yeah. Go, yeah, well, if he's no good, he's no good. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't doesn't make you a good player being yeah. one of those. 
but I can safely say that when decisions were being made, so the, the, the best example, probably the most famous example, would be something like Harry Kane. Yeah. So Harry's released at Arsenal, comes in physically very kind of far off what the other players were in terms of jump tests, speed tests, agility tests, 30% down on all of those. Physically, you probably wouldn't have taken, taken him. You could see why Arsenal might have released him because he didn't kind of fit the mould really. Technically, could strike a ball really cleanly, um, score goals, so some things that haven't changed. Um, parents were, father was a big man, athletic, you'd think you're okay, what if he can be his size? Not very scientific, but that's what people thought. Good learner, was really keen, took on board new information. So all those things were good, you know, looking back. Guess when he was born? July. Actually, at that time, we were doing a big project on the relative age effect, and one of the reasons, I'm not saying it was naturally the only one, the, one of the reasons why we ended up signing was, was we gave him the benefit of the doubt because he was born in July. Wow. So in, in that way, and what, what age effect, he came in, sorry? 11. 11. So at that time, it was the thing that got, you know, relative age effect was in his favour because if we hadn't been doing that, we might not have taken him. Yeah. And this was, you know, I sat down with staff a few months ago and we went through it and, and talked about why we signed certain players. What was it? to try and help us understand what are some of the characteristics that you might look for. Now, I'm not saying that you look for all summer babies, but that's one aspect. Maybe you need to just think, well, they're very young, let's give them time, let's be patient. And on the other side, it's, well, what are the other things? Technically, yeah, that's a key thing. If you've got somebody who can score goals, fantastic. They, they strike the ball really cleanly. Do you think that they can develop in such a way? Now, they can develop in such a way just naturally through their kind of the way that they're built and the genetics but also with something like Harry Harry is built on the basis that he will go work very hard in the gym he will follow a program of physical development he will do whatever it takes so did he have some of those kind of mental qualities behaviors that we think oh yeah well he's going to do it um, and if you can find those in players and start to identify those kind of characteristics well maybe that's another reason why you might want to sign them in the future so it's not easy and the younger they are the, the more difficult it is the physical testing side for example you know pre-puberty if you're trying to make decisions on their physical kind of stats then you're kind of missing the point and you're not going to get anything if you're using it as a decision making tool it can inform you it can help you can build up information but if you're saying I'm going to take this player or not and they haven't gone through puberty based on that physical testing I think you're you're, you're mistaken and I, don't, and I don't think clubs do anymore I think there was a little bit of a a time when perhaps they would have looked at that so I think uh, do, do you think um, does I, I've some of my clients I went individually they've come back said they've not got into an academy because they can't maybe get around the pitch yeah. as a nine-year-old still so what was what would your thoughts be on something like that yeah I mean that kind of I mean the biggest change was always from small-sided games to 11 side games and people yeah that that you know really annoyed me they haven't got the legs they can't get around well Again, you've got to try and picture what they can be in the future rather than what they are now. They, they probably can't get around the pitch because the pitch is really big and they are very small. Um, and, you know, they are still developing their movement patterns and their, all those other things can start to be developed. Now, can you suddenly make them into the quickest person in the world and they can go and do the 100 metres? Probably not. I think there's some other bits that they're going to require. Can they develop to be able to kind of meet the demands of the game? Some will, some won't. So it's really interesting when you see the ones that haven't been able to but guess what they come back at a later stage and they are naturally developed into what they're going to be and they can do it and yeah. then then they're snapped up because actually they can play football so again I think it's about being patient um, 
it is difficult within football academies because it's at a very elite level and you're going to have to make decisions on players just naturally you know, it's, it's, and you're trying to make it on a, on a uh, fundamentally a really difficult thing to kind of work out what's going to happen so you know, nobody's got a crystal ball um, and nobody can be 100% sure that a player is going to make it if you ask even the, 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 the most experienced coaches and ask them to say well come on who would you have said is going to make it there's not many that they can absolutely guarantee that we're going to do it. I've done it with national coaches and they would say, Michael Owen might be one, uh, Joe Cole, Wayne Rooney, might, yeah, they're at a young age. That's about it. They would never have said, oh yeah, I could definitely have said Stephen Gerrard's going to be a player when he was 12. They just couldn't do it. And, and you know, the, the, the easier it becomes, the later they get, but it's still very difficult. It's, it's, it's a complex, it's not easy. I was listening to Nick Cox the other day. He was at a conference. I was presenting, presenting at it as well, and he suggested maybe that you know, as as much he really you know admires the academy system, enjoys it, but he said maybe you know if we were reflect and say maybe is this the most effective way to produce players, he'd maybe question that. But what's your thoughts in terms of you know is you know do do we are we doing the way the right you know are we doing things the right way or you know could this is there maybe a utopia and over the horizon where we could. Maybe we're, we're missing out on something. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think the very nature of the fact that at the end of the day, you have to select very few people, like in any elite sport or any elite, if you're a pianist or a ballet dancer or, or any team sport, there is only a certain amount of people that will get to the very top. Um, and I, I think it's very hard to suggest that, okay, well, we're going to be so certain at a young age, we're only going to work with those and we're just going to follow those and they will make it. So naturally you have to have organisation and it's, and it's a team sport, so you're going to need to have enough players to make the team. So I think people that say, well, actually the academy system doesn't produce many players. Well, it produces enough players that are required for the game, um, especially when you've got the added pressure of foreign imports coming in and all those things, which makes it even more difficult. So by the very nature of the fact that you're only trying to find a few, unfortunately there's going to be lots that drop beside the, on the wayside. Um, and I don't know if there's anything naturally you can do about that. I think that's the nature of elite sport. And I think that we, we, we all have a problem with the fact that when people aren't successful or they're rejected, it's not nice. But I think for most of them, you, you know, for, for most people, you have a dream of doing something and most of us don't get there. You know, I might have dreamt about scoring the goal in the World Cup final. Mm. You know, you get to a certain point, but you're not going to do it. You know, there's only very few people that do that. So, is there a better way? I'm not sure. I think there are some really good situations and some good academies with good coaching. You know, is the old argument should they come in later and they mm. should spend more time in grassroots football? I, I think the reason why it did change, I understood at the time. I don't think the quality was perhaps there. And if your academy is able to actually provide that quality and experience, mm. then the fact that you then get spat out at some point, if it's done the right way, and people mm. understand, people would be disappointed naturally. Mm. But if you're coming out with new skills and you know experiences that you have, you don't lose those. And you know because it's non-linear, you could come back at another stage anyway. So, uh, listen, I, if I thought there was a better way of doing it, I'm. I'm I'm not sure. I've never seen anything different, but maybe it needs somebody very radical to come and show something else. But I, I was also, I'm always as a someone who's worked in the foundation phase predominantly, and seeing the um, the benefit and the you know the quality outcomes you can get from quality technical coaching, which we both saw at where yeah. we worked. Uh, I just I just feel like like you said, as long as you have a a, um, 
you know, methodology which includes play and fun and enjoying it, then you know that's 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 for me that's you know that's yeah. it's, it's fantastic because a lot. Some I was speaking to a, a, a technical director of a federation re recently, and he said they didn't want to do any uh, younger age groups academies because they were they were afraid of that very that very thing where you know they're being selective and then they're, they're missing people out. But then yeah. my argument was, well, then you're almost punishing everybody. You're not yeah. giving anybody any quality training. And then, like you said, there's the, there's the quality really there yeah. to give anyone that quality technical work. Yeah, and, and I think so. Yeah, I think there has to be a methodology. I think it has to be linked to a philosophy. Um, I, I, I think there needs to be a range of experiences. I don't see any reason why you can't have friends and colleagues, you know, people that you want to get on and that you would do in your grassroots football club. I guess the biggest issue is the kind of the whole retain release thing. You know, yeah. in grassroots, you're not going to get released. You might naturally move along, but you know, the the fact that at the end of the first year, there's this massive, big decision to be made, probably is not very helpful. So whether actually at the younger age you should give them a bit longer. So, you know, should you only be able to give them one year under nine? Should you be able to give them two years, like you can later on, just to give them a bit more comfort and they can relax a little bit rather than having to be always on edge you can naturally see it when it gets yeah. to those times being really really difficult with parents and with the players and that whole thing is so again whether you can keep them in and be more patient with them because the rules allow you to do it the other thing that you need though is always need people coming in and out of a system you know that's that's a, a way that those kind of systems kind of work so yeah I, I don't think I don't think it's easy but I certainly wouldn't say that well, we're just not going to do it because there will be some that you know will require but the only thing i would say is that everybody's route so different just because you don't go in at seven or eight doesn't mean that you're not going to come out the top end you know there's so many examples of players coming at 10 11 12 14 15 you know when you know, we took stephen corker at 15 had never been to a, been to one trial playing uh for the london schools you know and signing the next night and suddenly he gets a scholarship and a pro and he's played for england you know so I think that shows to people that, you know what, there, there are always exceptions to the rule and you've got to be open-minded and that you don't need to come in at six and seven. Yeah. And in fact, you haven't missed the boat if you do come in later. And I think the other thing is, because of the nature of football in this country, you, most, in my, when I was growing up, the chance of being at a professional academy or a football club was very slim. There wasn't that many around. Um, I didn't know that many people that were in it these days. It's hard not to be involved through one way or another, whether it's development centres. Almost all clubs have some kind of youth programme connected. So actually most kids can get involved at some level within a professional football setup. Now, whether they're all of the same quality, I don't know. You'd like to think so, but um, you know that's not the thing that ECPP was brought in to try and guarantee that there was a, a level, um, a level of facilities, a level of coaching. Um, but yeah, if if I if if my son was going to go into a club, I'd want it to be somewhere where it was going to be he was going to be well looked after, he enjoyed himself, and he was going to learn loads of new stuff, and and just yeah have, have lots of fun. And and whether he becomes out a professional football player, or he just comes out being competent, or he just comes out as a nice young man. At Spurs, we had a number of different kind of objectives. One was to produce players for the first team. And clearly that's what you're there for. Second was to produce players that were going to play professional football. Um, third was just producing kind of like just nice young men that would go out into the world and have a get a job and be happy and be fit and, and you know use those experiences. So we weren't failing anybody if they just went and did that. You know, yeah. um, no, listen, we didn't always get it right, and there were times where you're thinking, you know, have we done the right thing for that child? Have we worked in their best interest? 
I'd like to think we always did it with those kind of things in mind that we would always try and give them a really good experience uh, and, and hopefully along the way teach them something. But it, it doesn't always work and I get that. Interesting. So then moving on then to your next, uh, your next role at QPR. Uh, tell us about that, how that change happened and, and the differences, the contrast to being at Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, it was, it was funny because uh, I think like anybody, you get to a point where you want to move on and you get an opportunity. So I was asked if I would come over and take over the academy. Um, they were very keen to get through the kind of audit process. They were due to be audited a few months after I got there. Again, I managed to push that back. Lucky we were in the Premier League, so that always helps because you could go to the Premier League and say, look, we need some help. I'm not sure we would have got the same if we were in the Football League. I, I don't know. Um, but, so we moved it to the back end of the year and then it was really trying very quickly to put in place the things that I thought were important. So you know, having a philosophy, um, having the right people to deliver it, yeah. um, having the facilities in which to do it. Um, and, it and it wasn't easy because um, there, there were a lot of people there who had been set in their ways, had been there a long, long time. So trying to get that kind of culture of change was difficult and I was just very keen to make sure my task was to get them to category two. So I'd come from a Category 1 club, but I was going to go to a Category 2. I'd been through the audit process, so I knew what it looked like. Um, but, it, but it was challenging. You know, it was challenging to get the right people in place and actually to get that philosophy through to the coaches that then could go down to the, to the, to, to the players. Um, in, the, in the same time, trying to move training grounds and find suitable locations to do it. So I, I can remember having left Tottenham's new training ground where I'd got my nice new office and it was, I hadn't waited for so long. And I think people forget, you know, actually when you look at some of those players that have come through and been successful, that was at Middleton House. It wasn't the best pitches in the world. In fact, it was probably some of the poorest. Um, Chigwell was nice, but Middleton House was, when it hadn't rained for a few weeks, was, yeah. was difficult. A couple of years at Frentford as well. Yeah, Frentford <laughs> as well and all those things. And so, you know, sometimes those kind of facilities help produce players. But then I got to the promised land of the new training ground and guess what, within three months I was back in a porter cabin and I, <laughs> I got my suits all muddy going from the car to the thing. So I, I, maybe that's why I like best getting in the kind of chaos. Yeah. So yeah, again, you know, trying to persuade people and get them to understand where I was coming from. I was very committed to the, the kind of philosophy that we'd used at Tottenham. Um, and that's not everybody's cup of tea, I get that. You know, It can be very different from club to club. I genuinely believe that was the best way to develop players. So you talk about ball mastery and the 1v1 yeah, yeah, domination. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that and why you think that's important. I just think that if you're going to find players that are going to go to the very top level at a very young age, there are fundamental things that you have to be able to do. I think you can add other stuff. You know, I think you can, you can add one-touch passing, two-touch passing, but you can't suddenly add the ability to manipulate a ball and go past somebody 1v1. Um, and, and the way that we would always work was, you know, the early days we weren't quite chaotic games that people were just trying to express themselves, get comfortable with the ball, take people on and beat them. At some point they're going to have to understand that there's something called balance and they need to, somebody needs to defend a little bit. And also they recognise where suddenly it was 2v1 and it was a better option to, to pass to somebody. But I'd stood on pitches, you know, a good friend of mine was at Arsenal and I remember being there with the under eights and literally his instruction was pass it, pass it, pass it. And mine was, don't pass it, don't pass it, don't pass it. <laughs> and, and that's fine. He looked at me and I went, no, you do what you do and we do what we do. Now, I'm not having any kind of go at Arsenal because the way that they played the game was fantastic. One and two touch passing. And we'd sometimes find that really difficult to cope with. And parents would say, that's, look, that's how you play. That looks lovely. 
ours was a bit more chaotic because we believed that actually having that fundamental ability to beat a player long term was going to help them because you know you get to 16 and 17 for whatever reason the team stopped you from passing one touch two touch somebody's going to have a, have a little bit more about how you break a line with the ball um, so working on those things I think was really important being comfortable with the ball and then we felt we could build from there and build from there so at the beginning it was hard to persuade people of that argument because we couldn't show them any evidence it was successful but John McDermott Chris Ramsey all of us felt that that was the way forward and of course by the time I get to QPR suddenly we are showing some signs that it is successful and clearly subsequently the players that have come through the Harry Winkses and all those ones yeah. I think we've proven it is um, so going into QPR I think people were expecting me I don't know what people were expecting because I get got a little bit of criticism for the fact that we were trying to introduce these new things I think it would have been worse if I hadn't tried to implement those things because it would have just mean I was what was I doing before I just didn't believe it now I'm going to do something completely different so that's my beliefs um, and I was employed to kind of implement those. So you bring in a few more people, you educate the people there. And there were some really good staff, really good people. And we made an amazing kind of step forward to get us to the level. And not just because passing an audit is the most important thing, but we got things into place. We started to get the teams to play better. Our recruitment strategy became very much more localised to let's not be roaming all around the country. Let's do West London. Let's do kind of central London. Let's forget about those other areas. The owners at QPR were very much of, a, of, of the line that if you're going to try and um, compete with these competitors that are on your doorsteps, let's not bother doing it because we can't compete with Chelsea. We can't compete with Arsenal, Tottenham, probably not even Fulham, we're QPR. So we've got to do things a little bit different. So, you know, our uh, very small recruitment team, we looked at West London especially and, and then into London a little bit more. We set up some good partnerships with local clubs. Um, and I think we started getting some good players in and then we developed it in a way that I felt was appropriate for, for, for the, the, the needs of the game, what they're going to have to kind of, you know, what they would require to play further on down the line. Um, so by the end of that year, um, we got through the audit, which was great. Uh, and then we were kicking on kind of, you know, I think our, you know, our programs were stronger. The staff team that were coming in were, were really good. Um, and we were making some real progress. You mentioned it uh, just a minute ago then when you talked about when you were at Arsenal, they played two-touch and uh, Spurs were dribbling. I remember those days. And then the parents were like, well, actually, this is a more effective way because maybe it's more... So maybe they, they, you know, they probably win more games at that age, if you like. So, so being at Tottenham and then being at QPR, how did you manage the parents that, you know, in terms of you know, convincing them about the long-term projects, about how beneficial this is going to be when... Yeah. Maybe they're not winning as many games in the younger age groups. Yeah, and, I, and again, yeah, that's, that's important. So we would do a couple of things. So firstly, um, I spent a lot of time talking to them. So I don't think they'd really been used to having many get-togethers. They would do their kind of you know, end-of-season kind of reviews. They weren't into kind of doing their irregular reviews. They had the odd meeting, but not very much. So my first thing was just having regular meetings and explaining what my philosophy was, what was going on, prepared to talk to people individually. Um, and then trying to get them involved. So we do CPD stuff where we'd invite them along and explain what the session was so that when it came to game day, they would understand that we've been working on certain things. So it's great them standing on the other side, supporting, but if they were telling their son to do something different, it's not going to work because actually we might be putting them into situations and scenarios where they are going to fail because that's how you're going to have to improve. So if we'd been doing, I don't know, something simple like playing out from the back, 
and we've been working on it all week, you want to practice it at the weekend. And we might not be very good at it, in which case we're going to get caught out and we'll probably lose. But you know what, they've got to still practice it and they've got to go through it and then we will get better at it. And you know, I'm not saying we just throw them out there and then don't do any work on them. They'd come back in and we'd get it better and get it better. And then by the time they get to you know, the older age range, they can do it naturally and quite comfortably. And we found that even back in the Spurs days, that we were able to get more into them by the time they're getting almost under eights into under nines. They were more competent with the ball than when we first went there with the 16s and 17s, who were having to teach those new things too, because they just never done them before. So it was getting to do that. It was getting to education around what the game would look like. So the, the, trying to impress upon them that we don't want it to look like the first team. So it's not going to be very pretty. You're not going to necessarily enjoy it, but it was all part of the process. And they had to see, they had to kind of go on the journey and out the other side. And at some point it will look nice and it will all join together. It doesn't really matter if that doesn't happen until they're 15, 16, 17. And our view was, and we always used to, but at QPR, the same. You know, we'd go, we'd go and get some hammerings at places. Even when I was at Tottenham, we got hammered. You know, we'd go yeah, to Arsenal and lose well. every single... <laughs> You know, and it's, and it's soul destroying, and I get confidence and all those yeah. things. But when we did get to 18s and 21s, the results changed. You know, yeah. and we were confident that we'd go and get, we'd we'd win those games, and that, and actually more importantly, more players would go through the pathway. And at the end of the day, it's it's that kind of getting them to understand it's not about winning now. And of course, they all come from a background where they play in leagues and they go in cups and they get medals and they you know they're used to winning because they're the best players. Suddenly. They're not because they're getting beat every week, and it's it's a bit more painful. Now you don't want that. You want to, you know, you want them to have a winning mentality. You want them to kind of win games and play well. But you know, at the younger age, we all know if, especially if we were producing little players of high technical quality, big boys beat little boys generally at the younger ages. Mm. So, you know, trying to get them to buy into it was always difficult, and we would lose a few. We lost a few at QPR that just said, "Oh, we don't believe in your philosophy. We're going to go somewhere else." And you know fine I get that if that's not what you're into you know I think it, as time went on and we recruited different types of players you get a different kind of mentality uh, it happened at Spurs I think it happened at QPR so you suddenly recruiting players that are more technical whose parents understand it a little bit more um, but again the balance is really difficult interesting so then um, two years at QPR Tell us about your next role then at the FA how did that come about that and what took what made you change yeah, so um, I guess a number of things, personally and professionally, it, it, was, it was a good time. Uh, a good two years at Queen's Park Rangers, I'm really glad I did it. But, you know, like anything in life, if your country comes calling. So to be asked to go to the FA and work there was, was, you know, was fantastic. Um, very proud to be invited to go and work at St George's Park, it, you know, it wasn't very old. Um, and, you know, to be part of what was the first ever time that the organisation had a talent ID department, had a, in the past had a chief scout, but to actually have the opportunity to go and develop a, a whole department to look at how we recruit players. Different in terms of, you know, you're only going for English players. Actually, in the end, it worked out that there are other English players playing all over the place. We don't have that many English qualified players playing in the Premier League. We have lots of people that have many opportunities to play for somebody else. I remember doing some stuff with our 15s and 16s at least three quarters of the team had not only one but two but some of them had three different countries that they could play for so although you go into thinking this would be quite easy because everybody wants to play for England actually it's not so if you've got somebody like Ethan Ampadu you know how do you make sure that he comes and plays for you and not Wales now he did he ended up playing for Wales he played for us as well 
unfortunately, that was in the group that won the World Cup. And you know, when he first came in, he definitely would have been involved, but he, he wasn't the starting player. You know, he, he was one of those. But he, but he also had that opportunity. If he if he had no opportunity and it was only England, he'd still be playing for us now, and he would have probably gone on and done very well. But he didn't need to. He's got Wales, and he could go play there, which is not a bad option if you know you're going to go and get games. He then goes to Chelsea as well, and you know, and he's he's being at Stamford Bridge this morning, seeing his picture on the wall. So, you know, and compared to even some of the centre midfield players that we had at that World Cup, he's gone that way, and some of them are still, you know, Tishan Oakley Booth and others, Nia Kirby, and you know, Ollie Skip didn't even get into the team either. Yeah. You know, all those players are on the on their journeys. Ollie's now probably elevated above the other two mm. and you know so so many things changed but so the FA was was uh, was great to set up a whole department um, really interesting with the under 15s program that we started and you know trying to collaborate with clubs and all the issues that it brought to clubs clubs don't you know we found it hard enough to release their boys under 16s and all the issues that that causes so suddenly kind of wading in say look we want your under 15s now some were very supportive some quite rightly were a bit questioning and saying well, you know is that right to identify players at 14 that are England players. Well, what, what, would be the, what, would be the, what would be the potential implications of that, the problematic areas? Well, it's a bit like you asked before about how you keep people's feet on the ground. You know, if you're suddenly an England player, well, I think we won our QPR, I left QPR at the stage, but we, we had a, a young lad in from QPR and, you know, he came away, then went back to the club and said, I'm an England player now. You know, I think I need to go to a better club and I, or I need a better, you know, what are you going to give to me? And and even though we did parent workshops and we talked to the boys, and you don't go and knock on the manager's door. You know, you're not England players. You're in a development group. Um, you know, we thought about lots of things. Do we give them, let them wear an England shirt? Should they just wear a you know white sh Nike shirt and, and shorts and socks? And, and so they really understood. Um, but again, you get into that recruitment thing of it's a competitive market. We need to give them what other countries are giving them and all those things. Now we shouldn't do things just because other people are doing them. We want to do it because it means we can. Uh, look at the games program they're getting and actually the FA we did loads of work on the games program uh, I think when I, I can remember always looking at their games program it was always the same Victory Shield Nordics Montague uh, and that'd been like it for I don't know how many years so and clubs quite rightly would say actually you want our player to go to the Nordics and play against Iceland okay or Norway or the Faroe Islands that means they miss out on a trip to go and play against Real Madrid, Bayern Munich mm. and, you know, San Paolo or somebody. Um, I think our games programme is better than yours. And you, and you go, well, yeah, you're probably right, actually. Um, I think maybe, you know, a double-header against Faroe Islands is not going to be the same as playing against those teams. In the end, we changed it so radically that we don't do the Victory Shield anymore, right or wrong. We don't do the Nordics. We do Montague, but now we're doing... We're playing Brazil, we're playing, you know, we're playing Argentina or we'll be playing Germany or Spain. So if people say, you know, club manager, academy manager says, oh, oh we're playing Barcelona, and we'll say, yeah, we're playing Spain. You know, oh, we're playing somebody from Brazil. Well, we're playing the national team. You can't give them that. So actually there was less of an argument. Okay. But certainly with the younger ones, I think what you have to try and do is make sure that they understand it's a long way on their journey. It's great that they've been selected but please don't go back and suggest that you're anything else. But naturally, they now think they're in the past. So I, I understand the issues that it caused, and it identifies players. I'm not saying that other clubs don't know who your best players are, but what you found was that, you know, that would put me in a little bit into the, the shop window, and there was a period of time where people were moving around quite a lot. People were taking each other's players, cat one to cat one, that seems to have stopped. 
if you had a younger player that was ever called up for England, you, you know, it was going to really be hard to keep hold of them because everybody was there watching. In, the FA had to do a lot of work on managing the games, especially at St George's Park, which I was involved in about agents, parents, just becoming a bit of a melting pot and, you know, clubs then become even more unhappy if they felt they were going into this kind of area where there was just all these kind of distractions and people um, that were trying to get into them. So, yeah, I, I get it. But in terms of player development, getting an extra year, the 15s programme always started with training camps. Interestingly, the way that we organised the training camps, and you're talking about relative age effect, is that we selected in August three camps first camp was for those born at the beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year, so that you were really selecting across the whole year rather than doing the same as we did before and ending up with mm. the same thing, that all our players were born in January because of the international date. Um, so we would do it. Now, they didn't always fall correctly because what would happen is clubs had different things, different holiday dates, but what it would mean was that at least if there were 60 players, for example, there would be 20 that were born in the beginning, 20, 20, even how they were mixed in on the actual camps. So that was quite an interesting, um, kind of ex not experiment, but a different way of working. Um, but that was, so that was good. So I set that up and then um, built the programme, got the staff in, started to look after the older ones. Um, first when Roy was there, and then obviously when Gareth was there, working with him and AD. Uh, and starting to make changes in terms of you know, trying to get to a point where we weren't just re relying upon live observation, that we were developing the department into data science, um, uh, pathway kind of management and a whole range of different things to kind of um, add value to it rather than just going, well, it's just a scout going looking at a game. Can we, can we analyse games differently? Can we have data on the players? So what is, in terms of that then, did you ask the club for data? Would, are they quite open to that? Yeah, well, we got to, we, there's two different ways of doing it. Some of it is going out and finding it, but also taking advantage of when they come into us. Okay. So the big advantage of being England is that players come and spend a week with you. So therefore, how do we maximise that time, not only on the training pitch, but how can we also glean other information from them, whether it's sitting down with questionnaires and talking to them, whether it's testing in some kind of subtle way. I don't, I don't want to spend days testing, but how do you kind of gather that information about the player? And we can get the data, we can get the analysis for when they're with us in the games. Clubs generally will share stuff, not all of it, but some of it. Um, we can always get clips and, and videos of their performances. So again, it's how you use that. So it was trying to get a real full picture. How important was is that data analysis in terms of, for instance, you know, distance covered in a game as for a midfielder. How, how, how significant would that become um, in your talent ID? Well, again, I think for me, it's, it's linking everything to your philosophy. So if you want players that can do certain things and you've, you know what you want them to do physically, well, then you can measure those things and see how effective they are. If, if it's on technical stuff about, you know, how many forward passes that break lines, how many players do they take out of it, you can kind of get that information. So again, it's based on what you need to know. I, I would say the selection of players still comes down to human ultimately Gareth will pick who he wants to pick yeah regardless of what the data might inform him and he will he'll you know if there's any questions and he's not quite sure he'll look at that but ultimately he will make a decision and that decision might be based on what they give but also you know it could be a fullback and a center half how they combine together and and how the general look of the team is mm -hmm. and what else they bring in terms of character and all those other things but to have the data next to it I think is important so that he can say well okay I'm not sure. We used to have great discussions about whether a player could defend the ball at the far post or not. Uh, and then when you actually brought the data and said, well, look, the reality is he does all right. 
you know, that's his, that's his stats, that's how many times he defends yeah. the bar post. He's really good. And just because he's little doesn't mean that he can't do it. And we have this perception, oh, he's small, he can't do it. The reality on the data says, well, yeah, he's small, but he's, he can do it. And actually the game is not like that anymore. So he's not gonna have to do too much of it anyway. Um, so it did clean up a few little kind of things mm -hmm. like, you know, those discussions that you'd have. And um, so you were there really at the, you know, the beginning of the England DNA project, the, yep. the change. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that, how that came about and the sort of processes that went into that. Yeah, so I guess when I joined, the DNA had started to be built and I, I think it's around having those kind of layers of detail. So at the, the beginning it was kind of very kind of generic, kind of big picture stuff, whether it be in possession, out of position, transition, set pieces. Um, and then it was really trying in each phase to drill down into the, the detail. Um, getting involved with you know a number of different people, experts from the outside as well as inside, national coaches, trying to get people from clubs, and just really trying to engage with all of those to kind of drill down into the detail. I guess the difficulty is when you do it like that, it can go around in circles for a long time. At some point, you've got to say this is what we're doing, uh, and then trying to link all those things that you're coming up with was you know with your recruitment strategy and with your development strategy. So for England teams. You know, we, we got to the point where rather than scouts going out and filling in a generic form about can they head it, can they kick it, can they do this, it was, you know, if under 16s it's about look forward, play forward, and that's one of the things. Well, let's, let's see how many times they do that. Let's judge them on that. Can they do that? Is that something that you witness in a game? So it's trying to again link all those things to the philosophy. When it came to analysis, it's, well, if we know that's what we're looking for, let's measure that. Um, so I think it was really important, and I think I think the FA is in a good position to influence the game. And we'd always say that how do you influence it? Well, we we own the the coaching qualifications. So whether it's the youth coach educators that go into clubs that take on the responsibility of their education, whether it's through you know the the B license or the A license or the Pro license, if we start to think about the DNA, how we then coach it, you know, so. The different hexagons that we had on England DNA was about the future England player and how we coach and, and a range of other things. So, again, if we understand what that looks like, we can influence people within clubs. That then impacts on hopefully the players that they're producing, which helps us for national teams. Um, so, yeah, so it was really interesting being at the beginning and, it, and it's still developing to this day. I think it will probably, I think the slogan is evolving. So, it'll always be evolving. I don't think it's ever, and it has to be because. We don't want to get back to the stage where in 10 years time it's, it's now out of date. You know, I think one of the criticisms the FA would have faced is that just because you did something 20 years ago doesn't mean it's relevant now. You know, if you're doing a B licence course that was designed then, the game's moved on, things have yeah. changed, so it's how you keep abreast of it. Do you, do you think that you, you, uh, you, you, you were looking for different types of players that, that England traditionally looked for? I think it was understanding what the international game looked like. So it's a real tough one because um, a lot of countries have a very defined kind of culture of how they play. So if you go to Holland, generally speaking, even if you're on the, uh, the Dutch equivalent to Hackney Marshes, you probably see them playing 4-3-3 with wide wingers and an expectation of how they play. And that, that's fine. Um, I think our culture is a little bit more confused. So probably deep down with 4-4-2 and like to go long and smash everybody around and <laughs> Hackney Marshes is where you'll see it. Yeah. So almost from the outside looking in, that's what we expect. We know that's probably not the best way of playing international football, but it's, it's having that mix of kind of culture. So you want to keep your kind of island nation kind of competitiveness and all those things that we're renowned for, you know, 
foreign teams would always say, you know, England teams never give up. They always go to 90 odd minutes. It's always tough. So you want to keep some of that, but also understanding that you need to keep possession of the football because otherwise you're not going to get it back if you play the best teams. And I think we've had, a, I think we've, we've struggled to kind of get to grips with that. Mm. So I think England teams now are much, much better because we're very clear about what kind of players we need to get to do that. I think England can take some credit, but actually probably more what the clubs are doing. The clubs are the ones who produce players. And I think the academy system in this country can be criticised, but generally the investment that's been made means that we've got more good players, technically good players. And I watched England under-18s play last night. You know, we are physically fantastic, athletic, quick. And some countries will go, oh, well, you're just big and strong. Well, we are big and strong. I, I accept that. Technically, we were... We've, as good as if not better than most of those countries in the world mm. we can go to Brazil and compete physically but also can compete technically we played Sweden last night and you know the old days England Sweden would have been a tough old game it could have gone either way it was a bit of a walk in the park you know and the, the, the issue you're going to have now is just finding the right level of challenge because yeah. unless we play you know we literally need to take that group go away and play in you know and play in Paraguay just to give them a bit of a you know physical fight and a, and a different technical battle, um, it's really hard because they're a strong group who can do all things. So, I, so England's success was born on the fact that we've got better players to select. We kind of know what we're looking for. We've got some good coaches, um, and, the, and the biggest thing for me when we were successful last summer was more based on relationships. So, if you look back at previous years, we've always had reasonable players, but we've never been able to get them on the pitch. You know, withdrawals were always so high. You know, you'd go to an under 20s World Cup thinking we've got a chance, but the first 35 players selected have withdrawn for various reasons because the calendar's not great and all those things. Last year, we, I think we only we missed out on about two or three players across the 17s and 20s. If we get our best players out and you know what, they are good, we'll, we've, we've got a good chance of winning. Mm. This summer, it's been difficult. The under 19s played at the same time as after a World Cup during pre season back to square one because lots of players were withdrawn because clubs were going on their pre-season tournaments or tours the World Cup players weren't back this is a good opportunity to look at younger players suddenly the under-19s is decimated and then we don't do as well as the European finals um, well, what, why, do you, why do you think then um, we've suddenly got these such a you know a, a sport for choice for so many good <coughs> technical players but maybe in the past we weren't producing such technical players and maybe no. uh, philosophy and coaching and facilities so if you've got good pitches that you can actually play football on you've got a philosophy and coaches that can actually develop players the games program I still think even though there's some criticism at the top end of 23s etc you if you look at most countries you know if you look at Barcelona Barcelona will play their 16s will play some good games but most of it will be against local clubs and it will be you know quite high scoring games if you're in you know, most places in this country, you will play, you know, in Manchester, you'll be playing Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Everton. Yeah. In London, the, you know, the weekly games programme. So if you can couple that with really kind of good coaching, uh, I think our coaching philosophy has gone more technical. Yeah. You know, we, we aren't just thinking about smashing the ball forward and, you know, we are trying to play in the right way and we're getting better at doing it. Um, I guess the, the issue then is, how that translates into under-23s football, but more importantly, first-team football. You know, again, going back to the English qualified players, I think we're about 30, 31% English yeah. qualified players. And that's a very small 
pool of players to pick from. So Gareth is, you know, as much as people criticise about selecting, there's not that many players to pick that are playing regularly in the Premier League. And actually, you don't want them just playing in the Premier League. You want to be playing in the top four teams to play Champions League yeah. or at least Europa League, because England football matches are generally tournament football. We want to be good at tournaments and cup competitions. Yeah, we can't, you know, we can't get enough players. We haven't got enough players playing in the top three or four European leagues. You know, Jaden Sancho goes to Dortmund, and he's in the squad now. You know, Jaden's that's a good move for him, going from Watford to Man City, deciding to go to Dortmund, playing. But we don't, you know, he's like, you know, there are more going, but he's kind of the one now. Spain have got players playing all over the world. Brazil have got players yeah. all over the world. Their, their pool of talent to select from is much, much wider. So I guess that's the biggest challenge that we face. The Premier League is the best, as far as I'm concerned, the best league in the world. It's entertaining, it brings loads of money, which helps the clubs. But actually on a basis of the fact that the managers only last very short periods of time, they're not really invested into thinking about the younger players. Some do, Klopp's done very well, Pochettino's done very well, yeah. others have done well. Um, and no disrespect to the smaller clubs sort of just come up, the Brightons and the Bournemouths and you know, those kind of, they tend to be where all your English players are. Yeah. Um, but are they going to be the ones? Maybe, but you know, we could do with a bigger selection pool. Thinking about that group, that 17s group just quickly, it's quite interesting um, that all the players who played that day won the World Cup. They were all in the academy system from the foundation phase, yep. many from eights and nine. So, do you think that's like a you know you talked about that earlier? Do you think that just just being in that environment, being you know we talked about it earlier about the elite coaching environment? Do you think that's I mean, does that show does that show the success of the academy system, or is it you know this, is it just um, like a crop of uh, yeah? You know, I, I guess I guess it does to a point. I mean, I think winning the under 17s is different from then going on winning the senior world cup and I, yeah. gu I guess that's where it's going to be the difference do you need some other types to come in do you need an underpinning kind of technical kind of ability that you're going to receive in the academies i think all of those have gone through you know the academy system at some big clubs good clubs which have been investing for a long time so i don't think it's any question that if you look at chelsea's academy chelsea's academy now has been running for a good period of time under its current kind of leadership and it's you know is up there. Now, others are playing catch. Tottenham's now been in, you know, 15 years, ish. You know, so it takes time to get to the level you need to get to. And I think other, obviously, other clubs are in the same situation. So, listen, I, I think that again, I'm not going to just say that everybody has to come in at eight and go through yeah, it. Yeah. I think people can come in at eight. Yeah. They might come in nine. They might come at ten. Yeah. But clearly, the more underpinning kind of technical ability that yeah. they're going to get at an early age is going to help them long term. It's like any sport. I think it's quite interesting that group particularly though, it's just not the fact, just the fact that they won and they were all in the academy system, but it's just the, the style of the players and the, yeah. the amount of individuals you had in there, Sancho, Foden, Brewster, yeah. Tashan, Oakley Booth, Nia Kirby, the list yeah. goes on. There's so many, you know, maybe not normal, typical English type players. These like, you know, small technical players, you know, who can go there and play Spain off the park if you like and Brazil yeah. off the park so it's quite a unique yeah. batch of players and I, and I think you get that there's no question that you're going to have good years and bad years I don't, I don't think I mean to be able to maintain that level across is always any country would have a problem I think we've we've got a number of good year groups but there's always going to be a little bit of a dip um, so I think it was a, a hugely well, the, the difference with that group was compared to others is most England groups can either do one thing or the other they're either good going forward but can't defend or can defend but can't go forward that was the first group that was solid defensively um, 
you know, I know they they lost the, the goal in against Spain in the European final in the last minute, and you know, Jonathan Panzo should have probably kicked the ball out of play, and he's hit the fullback's head, it's come back, it comes across, no, give away a corner, keeper probably could have done better, and all those things, and you lose. But generally speaking, you know, we've got we had good players who going forward, you know, Callum Hudson Odoi going Callum forward. Callum Hudson, yeah. of course, yeah. You know, you've got him and you've got Sancho and you've got Foden, you've got um, you know, that, that is as good attacking, you know, that could be in the future wherever we're looking for, but remarkable. But then you had Panzo, TJ Ayoma, you know, all the defensive players that are in there that were solid and good defence. So, you know, whether it's gonna you know, just a bit of a freak, I don't know. The fact that we'd done well with the twenties as well, and that you know shows that we have. And like I say, watching the under 18s last night, you know Mason Greenwood, people like that who were just yeah, they, they were really good as well last night. And you're thinking well, that's another group that are going to go on. Um, so I think I think the academy system is producing more and more players, physically good players who are quick and agile, but technically really good. Now I guess it's that kind of game understanding kind of tactical now so perhaps again we've missed I remember taking teams abroad from a young age and being found out a little bit because the Italians were just a bit cuter than we were and you know they just not necessarily they were better technically but they just understood the game better so it's building that kind of game understanding so I'm, I'm you know I think at club level where you have got analysis going on they are looking reviewing their performances they are thinking about the game much more I think that all helps I don't, I don't think you should be too process-driven the whole time in developing players, but certainly I, I, I think the academies, you know, all academies are different, they manage in a different way, but the general level is just Do you think it's a direct higher. result of the ECCP, that, or do you think it's more...? Yeah, I mean, people criticise it, and I'm, there's lots of it that I wasn't happy about, um, but generally the fact that you, it needed change, you know, everybody was moaning about the, 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 the way it was, so something had to come and do something different. It has meant there's a lot more investment. Is money always the issue? As I said before, you know, being at Frenford and you know those times with probably Harry Kane having to play on those probably did him as good as playing on the lovely flat surfaces mm -hmm. of the new training ground at Tottenham. Um, so you know, money isn't everything, but I think if you've got the right people running it and you've, you, your thought process is good and your you say your methodology, the way that you coach you've got more ability to actually work with those players and, and have the right resources to be able to do it. So E-Triple-P allowed that to happen because it was mandatory, people had to do it. I think the biggest surprise was everybody wanted to invest as much as they have. I think there was a feeling that that would cut down the amount of Cat 1s, but now there's more Cat 1s than there was before. Um, obviously two, I suppose Huddersfield and Brentford, the ones dropped away from doing it and looking yeah. at a different model. Um, but generally the clubs have, have you know, have kind of embraced it, and I think that has that's certainly helped England to get better players. But but also the game generally, I think we have got better players in the system. Interesting. So now you do you do a lot of um, consultancy work now, and ed, like uh, scout education, coach education. Yeah. How do you teach talent ID? Well, again, one of my roles at the FA was to develop the kind of levels of courses from the one to the five, um, and we actually started level. Well, we did the level two at the same. The level four came out probably ahead of everything, which was for heads of recruitment around management and strategy but mainly to influence those people to get people on the courses and to develop it. I guess it's for me I'm very passionate about talent ID and it's getting people to understand some of the kind of underpinning kind of just the basics around talent ID so people said to me why are you doing the level one what's the why 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 are you as head of talent ID worried about what happens on the grassroots um, so I would say well 
if we can try to educate people that are grassroots level around some of the basic concepts, so whether it is about relative age effect or maturation, whether it's about nature versus nurture, about potential versus performance, all those kind of basic underpinning stuff, if we can get them to understand some of those things, when the club scout now goes to watch, there might be different types of players out there, they might have thought about it more, because actually the club scout is only as good as the grassroots manager. He, is picking, he or she is picking from a, a pre-selected group. Mm. So you pick it. If you don't know anything about it and you just want to win the game, if I was you, if you want to win the league, let's go for the biggest, strongest, oldest. You're probably going to win. Yeah. If that's your mindset, and, and I don't realise that and go and watch you because you've got all the best players because you're top of the league, and I go, yeah, I'll have him, 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 him. Well, you get what you get. So if these can become better and more understanding, that might have an impact on what's going into the clubs. The next stage was how you educate the club scouts and we, we have a level two, which is a bit like the B licence, shorter in, in its duration. I just did one last weekend up at Newcastle. So working with academy scouts, four modules, looking at kind of some of the basic underpinning principles, some of the relationship stuff, a whole range of how to operate as a scout, rules and regulations, um, communication, a whole different raft of things. But just trying to sit with them and talk about it, observation stuff, watching games, comparing, how we observe people, what we see, talking about bias, you know, we all have our biases. So it's starting to get people to recognise some of those kind of issues. So the whole thing about bias, you know, we are drawn towards people that we like. I like little small wingers that can beat people on. Yeah. I have to be aware of that, otherwise I just that's what I select and I forget about big centre halves who can edit and kick it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we need some of those as well. So, you know, and it's not a negative and some people might say it's just a, an understanding of what it takes to get to where you need to get to. But it's just having the strategies in place to kind of recognise that. One, I recognise I'm biased in certain areas. What do I do to, about that? Or I might ask you for your opinion and you can challenge me on my opinion. One of the things I always found frustrating and most people do is it's the whole concept of slowing down the decision making. People hate it because we want to move quickly. Mm. But actually, slow it down. Just think about it. Get other people's opinions. Now, in a competitive world, we know we can't wait too long because otherwise somebody else will come and nab them. But actually taking a bit more time, revisiting, thinking about it, probably means to less mistakes, mm. um, especially around bias. So all those kind of things, working with people just to get them to understand that and, and sitting down with them, comparing how they, they judge a player, you know, the vast, you know, because it's, it's human nature where you stand and watch the game, what your biases are, what your, mm. your philosophy is, might impact on the decision you're making on a player or how you grade a player. So uh, the work I'm doing now, outside of what I do at Loughborough is just sitting down with them and going through a program of kind of personal development. And speaking about personal development, how do you develop yourself? How do you keep fresh and keep, you know, evolving? Yeah, well, part of that is what I'm doing. So I'm say Loughborough University, which is great. So academically, it's a fantastic place to, to get involved with him. We have a big CPD program. We have experts coming in to talk all about football and different things. So all different sports. I'm finding it a really good learning experience because suddenly I'm in the same office is somebody from rugby and hockey and got triathlon down the corridor and I can talk to those people about what they do you know they think we're mad sometimes and I think they're mad but we we can learn from each other um, actually me going to visit clubs abroad or go to you know into clubs over here I'm still keeping fresh I'm still learning I'm still talking to people going to conferences um, you know going to leaders this morning for a breakfast kind of round, round table discussion listening to 
people from the NFL um, talking to colleagues that I've known for years and getting their feeling on. So I think you're constantly learning. I'm still learning stuff that I didn't know before. You know, I try to read books. I don't believe everything I read. I think nobody should, but certainly trying to get just a kind of different take on, on stuff. So, yeah, I, I think I'm, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I, I'm still trying to learn and, and kind of push myself forward because you know, the game game is changing and, and you know the knowledge that you acquire is changing so uh, you've got to keep yourself kind of fresh just a couple of questions here from Twitter you know being the modern age that oh, we're in uh, what is talent uh, can you honestly spot talent when watching one game or session be honest scouts are looking at ability not talent when scouting so I think the problem you get is that a scout will go and watch a game and they'll be looking at the performance in the game so somebody will do well or they won't do well on the day and that's all they can look at they're not you know, on that day they have to report on what they see the danger always is that if you make a decision based on one whether it's very good or very bad it's difficult so what you need to do is get a, a number of games you know you have to go and see somebody a, a lot more times to get more of a balanced view on them and I guess it again comes back to that education piece it's about you know what are some of the predictors of talent so talent I think is you know something that, that we all have we have a talent um, I think the, the key thing for me is around potential so how far can you take that talent so you know, I, I perhaps could play football up to a certain level that's that's kind of where I'll reach I won't go any higher some people overachieve some people underachieve so I think some people have got that kind of natural kind of um, ability to do well in something whether it's because they love it or they've got some kind of natural gift that needs to be nurtured to make them get to where they need to get to potential wise the, the key thing for me is watching it with a view that <coughs> I understand some of the basic concepts if it's about characteristics do they exhibit some of those characteristics is it about technical ability <coughs> do they do they exhibit some of those things and do they do those over time and are you seeing is that thing about are they getting better you know they will plateau at some point but it's it's giving them enough time to watch them to see if they are developing and they are but the, the kind of psychological stuff is massive and again how you do that as a scout is quite difficult but you can pick up on some things whether it's stuff around resilience or rather communication or leadership kind of skills um, you know, whether it's about you know are they able to kind of understand and take on board new concepts quite quickly and a, a range of different things that you might want to have a look at um, but I think it's kind of starting to recognize some of those so yeah I would agree with that person that it is dangerous if you're just doing it on one performance yeah. and, and I'd always say to clubs that you should really have two grades you should have a performance grade and a potential grade um, but they do find it difficult you know that that's the one thing that when you go to watch a game you're seeing them perform and you you grade them as you see them if the day that they didn't play their well you, they didn't play their well mm. and the next day they do play well you're getting that kind of balance over a number of games interesting so how we talked about it a little bit earlier but how young is too young in terms of scouting approaching parents and getting kids into development centers honestly find stories of four five six year olds being approached completely wrong personally i, I think um you know the, the problem you have is that if you put a first registration under nines you create competition under eights so wherever you start you're going to have that kind of because the players are free to go wherever they want i think players these and parents these days are a bit more savvy than they used to be so the best players will be out every single night playing at the biggest clubs in the world you know and I can understand that to a point uh, the problem is if you're competitive and you want to get a competitive age you don't you, you don't just stop with the under eights because now you need to get the under sevens mm. and blimey they're doing under sixes so we need to do the under sixes 
again, fundamentally, I don't have a problem with organisations like football clubs providing a great programme that's enjoyable, it's a good experience and it's fun. When it's linked to some kind of recruitment, then I suppose that's when it gets difficult. So, yeah, I, there's something a bit perverse about approaching five and five-year-olds to come in. If it's a great place for them just to come and play football mm. and they enjoy it, then fair enough. If the clubs who've got lots and lots of money are investing in centres where there's coaches, good coaches, good facilities, and you can take advantage of it, why not? It just becomes more and more difficult if it's re releasing players at six and seven, you know, mm. they're not good enough to go forward. That's I think quite interesting, I suppose, it's that, sorry to interrupt Rich, is that, I suppose you look at clubs like Anderlecht or Ajax or clubs in France where they're one, one, one city clubs, they have these sort of community programmes with these young, yeah. but there's no sort of, when, when you're in, in London, you've got a saturated market and suddenly it's, you know, about competition, that's when it becomes a little yeah. bit different, doesn't it? Cause oh, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, uh, and again, if you, if you started under 12s, the under 11s would be massively competitive. So, yeah, London especially, but, you know, other places in the country, it's crazy, you know, and it, it, it's getting worse and worse because everybody's trying to get the same, even though some might say, well, actually, it's not worth thinking about too much because we know, you know, the percentage is quite small that actually go all the way yeah. through right to the very top. But I get why most academies want to have a good level within their coaching programs because you know that some will go and some will stay and some will come in, but you want the general level to be high. Um, so we are all the only the only I suppose the only other thing is that we're not all looking for the same types there is a little bit of difference but you tend to find that the best players have lots of different options and it's parents find it quite difficult at some point where they've got to make the decision you know they like the fact they're being courted they like the fact they've got all these opportunities you know, why wouldn't you I mean most people would love to go and train at Arsenal then Chelsea then Tottenham in one week and get everything that goes with it the free tickets to go and watch the game and all those things Kind of living the dream. Um, I guess it's the effect it has on the seven or eight year old, especially if they don't then get picked up. Or, and in fact, you know, I've had more players that are, especially as they get older, are more worried about how their parents are going to deal with it. So I, I was sitting with an under 16 player that had been released, and he said, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just worried about my dad. Mm. He's taking it really difficult, you know, this is his life. And I suppose it's you know, the worst kind of rejection, so I'm rejecting a child, I suppose it's that, you know, it's difficult that. Well also it becomes, if you've been there for so long, it's your whole, it's everything, it's your whole social life. You, you're so, you know, you're so engaged with it, you're committed to it, you're going every day and you're making friends mm. and you're, you know, as a parent, that's your life. And, and also, you know, there'll be some parents that will be telling and keeping people updated about their progress and you know if you're at Tottenham or you're at Arsenal you're doing really well and you're flying and they've you know you might be in the pub saying oh yeah my son I went and watched today they beat Man City and he did really really well yeah. and, and suddenly it comes a point where wherever it happens and it, you know if it's 14 or 16 or whenever it suddenly stops mm. and we're, you know you haven't got those support mechanisms or you haven't got your social kind of friends and now you're not down the pub saying it's because he's now gone and, and this lad was yeah he was more worried about how his dad was than he was which is you know which is a shame um, and that's one of you know I go guess us you know the whole kind of concept of full-time education models and everything centered around the football club I, I feel a bit uncomfortable with I think that children generally should have different kind of support groups mm. so I think they should have their family I think they should have their friends I think they should have their school friends I think they should have their football friends their whatever friends and then if one thing goes a little bit array they've got those other support mechanisms in the end you've got players that are going into full-time education models living on site where it becomes almost football is the only thing now they'll always have their family 
but maybe they don't have their friends anymore. They haven't got their school friends because it's their football friends. Yeah. And my worry is that whenever it happens at 16, they don't get a scholarship, they lose everything. You know, they have, you know they've, they've got nobody else because they've all gone. And well, so if they've been there since they're under eight as well, you know, that's the whole, yeah. been the whole life. Yeah. So, you know, it's half of the child, but it's also then half of the parents have also been mm. centered their lives around it. So I yeah. think it's, it is tough. But again, I go back to my original thing where I think um, life's quite tough. Every other sport's quite tough. Football gets a bad press, but you know I've heard of some horrific stories in other industries. You know, mm. if you if you don't get um, the next gig at the the theatre where you're you're working as an actor, they don't do anything. They just leave a letter in your cubby hole, you know, and you're out or you're in. You know, yeah, that's yeah. it. And then you just pack your stuff and you go, and you're yeah, you're at yeah. the door. Now, clearly, if you're happening at nine years old or ten or eleven or twelve, that's different from it happening at even at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. But it's still, you know. I was saying, like I said earlier, you know, you're the best violinist or, you know, you're ballerina. One of my friends is parents of uh, mum of the one of the best ballerinas in the country. It's high, high, ultra competitive environment, yeah. the same, you know, you're either in, you're out. Well, pretty much ballerina, there's only one, you yeah. know, at that, that company. <laughs> so, you know, at a football club where you've got, okay, four English players in the first team, if you're lucky, yeah. well, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> there's no God-given right that you're going to yeah. be the one who gets it. In fact, you're probably not. And, yeah. you know, if you can be in a good programme, and I'm proudest, I suppose, at Tottenham, where constantly I come across players that are down the system. They're, they're in it, still making a living. You know, Chelsea's had a lot of criticism, and Arsenal used to get a lot of criticism. And, I, you know, it is hard to get into first teams. But actually, if you look at the amount of Arsenal players or Chelsea players that are through... So all, all the divisions we have are full of players that have probably come through the academy system. Yeah. They're not all at the top, but they kind of find a level. I suppose you say, as before, you want to, if it's not for the first team, then the same as when I was at Chelsea, it's about creating more professionals than anyone else. You know, so you've yeah. got to be creating professional footballers. You're a finishing school, right? Yeah, exactly. And and goes back to my original thing of, you know, at the end of the day, I'd say to parents, you're disappointed now. Your son will never lose the, the experiences that he's had. When he's filling in a CV, he'll have always been a... Queen's Park Rangers player, a, a Tottenham player. You would have gone all the, you would have done all those things. So if you want to then go into education and you want to become a, I don't know, a, a PE teacher. So you're a PE teacher that has spent all your kind of informative years at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Mm. That makes you employable because you've got that knowledge of working in an elite or playing in an elite environment. Yeah. You're, you've been, a, you know, you've been a potential elite player. You haven't been elite in terms of playing in the first team, but. That, no, that never goes. The fact that you've yeah. played all over the world football, that never leaves you. You mm. might find it difficult now, but you'll look back and go, I gave it a good old go and I did pretty well, you know. Yeah. And I was speaking to a lad that we have at Loughborough University who was saying, you know, I didn't make it at Liverpool. I ended up at Shrewsbury. I'm now here. I'm doing my, I'm doing my degree and I'm fantastic. Oh, yeah, I used to play with Trent Alexander-Arnold. We used to play at the back together at Liverpool. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we still talk now and then. You know, he's doing what he's doing. I'm doing what I'm doing. But... You don't lose that experience. You might you, you might get a distance between you. You're not speaking to him too much anymore. But you you did what you did. Yeah. Um, and you've gone off in a different direction. And he's doing pretty well. And he'll come out with a good degree. And he'll go off and get employed somewhere. And I'm sure he'll be really successful, whether it's in football or outside of football. Having that background of the stuff he's done is not is not lost experience. Not wasted time. Mm. It's it's actually you know. And he's playing now at the university. A good standard of football. You'll probably go away and be able to play and make you know a little bit of a living playing it, as well as getting a proper job and doing other work. Okay. So just finally, uh, any what advice would you give for a young, well, we normally say coach, but young uh, someone who wants to get involved in scouting talent ID and like to you know get to some of the uh, the great positions you've had in the game? 
Um, I think it's it's understanding the kind of the various levels. The, the underpinning kind of knowledge is really important. I think I've got a coaching background, so that helped me kind of understand a little bit more about the game. I think that kind of whole thing about being a student of the game, understanding, um, and then really finding something where you feel comfortable to kind of start practicing. When I when I first started doing it, I was asked to do some scouting for Leighton Orient, and you do a little bit, and then I did my A license and got asked to do some scouting for England on a part-time basis. And I had some really good experiences, very luckily, when I was just outside of football, I was in grassroots football. The, the best thing that ever happened to me, I, I was asked to, by the FA to look after all the international teams that came across as a li team liaison officer. And people say, why do you want to do that? You're just kind of running around teams. I must have worked with the Spanish teams seven or eight years on the trot. And this was back before they started to become really successful. They were doing well at youth level, but not doing. I went to every single training session of Iñaki Saith and others who were the top Spanish coaches who have led to their kind of dominance. And I just used to watch them coach and speak to them and watch the players and get an understanding of the level. And I'd come back to my own place and just copy the sessions. And years later, we'd be at Tottenham, one of the coaches said to me, which we did this like eight years ago. Uh, it wasn't me being brilliant. It was yeah. the fact that I had seen somebody else doing it. I was copying them. Yeah. And guess what? We were ahead of, the, ahead of the curve. So getting those kind of experiences led me to then being able to, when John McDermott said to me, do you want to come? Yes, I knew London inside out. I'd worked for England, so I knew the levels of, of England players, and I'd done that job, so I knew what the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Germans looked like. So I had a kind of a, a variety of kind of experiences to kind of put in. So for any kind of aspiring person, try and get as many experiences as you can. I'd go on the FA courses, the level one's out there, you can get on it. We're doing regional courses for the level two, because again, those people who aspire to become rather than already in it, need to have an opportunity. Uh, in November, there's a scouting conference up at St George's that we do every year. You should go and see that and get some kind of really good information from different sports around talent ID. Um, and you know, as I say, getting kind of linked up with the right kind of clubs that you know that, that have the philosophies that you feel kind of aligned to. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think just getting as many experiences as you can. And what about finally about a player? What advice would you give to a young player uh, on their starting their journey? Um, We've, we've talked lots about um, the kind of the, the one of the kind of characteristics of a player that loves the game. I think you've got to, you know you've got to love the game of football. And there'd be some people that disagree with me, but I think generally loving what you do. It's like anything in life. You know, I was rubbish at most subjects, but I loved history and I was quite good at history because I loved it. And a good teacher enthused me. Was what I would call an igniter. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's enjoying the game finding somewhere that you feel really happy and content in an environment, all the different environments you might be in, working with a coach that you want to work with, um, and just kind of have that thirst for, for knowledge. And, you know, unfortunately, that you're not going to get anywhere in anything, really, unless you work bloody hard. So, you know, you've got to work hard. You've got to make sure that you're putting the effort in. Um, and if you look across the game, those people have been highly successful. From the outside, you might think they're just naturally gifted. But you're not telling me that Messi doesn't work hard, that Ronaldo doesn't work hard, that Harry Kane doesn't work so, so hard every day to get to where they get to. It doesn't come easy. So you've got to be prepared to put that effort in. And finally, my personal football coach is all about ball mastery. How important is that technical work away from the game, being master of the ball? Yeah, uh, you know, the best players, if I listen to stories of when I was working with England, working with somebody like Phil Foden, Phil Foden always has a ball. 
He has one in every room in his house. He always does something when he gets into the house. He can't help but love the ball. So, you, you know, those players have almost have it under their arm and practice every day on their own, up against a wall with somebody else, just being really comfortable with the ball and being able to manipulate it so that it becomes a part of you. Richard, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.